This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and my uh, alma mater, Sydney University and its Catholic Society, and Peter Singer. The recent I'm in Sydney Town Hall listening to a debate about voluntary euthanasia. Arguing the case for is the well-known Australian ethicist Peter Singer, and against is the Archbishop of Sydney, the most reverend Anthony Fisher. There is bracket creep in euthanasia. First, we're told it's for competent, informed consenting adults only, and then it's extended to the incompetent, the unconscious, babies. As Fisher speaks, it soon becomes clear that what I'm listening to is a masterclass in FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt, the seeds sown by opponents of assisted dying to great effect down the years. But what lies inside those little seeds of FUD? Today, for the first time, we're going to find out. Fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying and them die. another it's option. This leaves me no choice. A perfect goodbye. Of eugenic impulse. This evaluation of We lives. just don't talk about it. Against the invasion we of death. We play the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control the it. The police are obliged to charge me. Shy away. What the hell can you do? A murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. My name is Andrew Denton, and you're listening to Better Off Dead. There are no more committed opponents to assisted dying than the Catholic Church. They've thrown resources and the full weight of their political influence against it wherever it's been proposed. Look closely at many of the websites, blogs, research institutes and organisations fighting assisted dying around the world, and you will most likely find the fingerprints of the Catholic Church there somewhere. Which is why the words of Archbishop Fisher one of Australia's most senior Catholic clerics and a man who commands the ear of many politicians are worth listening to. There is bracket creep in euthanasia. First, we're told it's for competent, informed, consenting adults only. And then it's extended to the incompetent, the unconscious, babies. First, it's for those who judge their own lives to be too burdensome for them. But how quickly societies that go down that path start making the judgment those lives are too burdensome for others. Putting granny out of her misery so easily becomes putting granny out of our misery. That's exactly what's happened in Holland and in Belgium. In Holland, it was supposed to be for people in extreme suffering, consenting, adults. But after 10 or so years of that experience, it became legal to do it for babies. Having classed the frail, elderly, disabled and others as expendable, the community is likely to do less for them and leave them feeling worthless. 
It's powerful stuff. A slippery slope that takes in the weak, the non-consenting, the elderly, the disabled, even babies. But as I listen, I can't help wondering, where have I heard this before? Um, Elder abuse. Elder abuse is excellent. There's nobody in the world that denies that there's elder abuse. That's Nancy Elliott from New Hampshire, speaking at an anti-euthanasia convention I'd attended in Adelaide earlier in the year. Nancy is explaining what lines of argument work best when trying to influence politicians. Right now, the disability argument is really kicking it. It's very powerful. Now, will it always be powerful? We don't know. Two, three, four years from now, that may have holes kicked in it. Um, Just, you know, for different reasons. So we have to be flexible. Nancy has lots of suggestions for good arguments to run. Suicide contagion is another very good um, thing to point out. To your Doctor predictions, they can be wrong. Um, the, other, the other thing that, that we point out is when suicide is a treatment option, all care goes down. Nancy knows that the quality of the argument is less important than the quantity. When you have lots of arguments, if one argument gets blown out of the water, you still have more and each argument will reach somebody else. Experience tells her that even one seed of FUD, properly sown, can be very effective. Also, you only have to convince legislators that they don't want this bill. I mean, you don't have to win their hearts and minds. All you have to do is get them to say, not this bill, and then you've got your win. Over the eight months I've been listening to the arguments against assisted dying, it's clear that Nancy's playbook, focusing on the elderly and the disabled, is being put to good use. Here's US litigator Catherine Foster. Prescribed suicide creates broader opportunities for elder exploitation and the abuse of individuals with disabilities. And here's Australian doctor Nick Cooling explaining how his home state of Tasmania narrowly avoided adopting a law for assisted dying. Our messages were um, this idea that we had very vulnerable people in Tasmania, particularly the elderly and those with disabilities, and they were at great risk um, uh, in this particular legislation. Certain ideas occur regularly too. For instance, that assisted dying laws make people think some lives are not worth living. But once you legalise it, some physicians are going to say, well, I agree your life is not worth living. That's reasonable to me. But you can't separate the prejudices or the attitudes of the person when they're agreeing that your life is not worth living. That's Canadian Alex Schadenberg. And this is Father John Fleming, who played an important backroom role in overturning the Northern Territory's euthanasia law in 1997. But we have to penetrate into the mentality that gives rise to it, and that is that there are some lives that are simply not worthy to be lived. Sometimes key phrases are regularly trotted out. Father Fleming again. I I begin to suffer with my mother who's seriously ill. Uh, And then it's, please put mum out of my misery. Dutchman, Henk Reitzma. Uh, The temptation can be there to try and put somebody else out of our misery because it's so hard to see them. Which brings us back to the most reverend Anthony Fisher. Putting granny out of her misery so easily becomes putting granny out of misery. It's FUD. Fear, uncertainty, doubt. Words and phrases that, taken at face value, sound alarming. Let's go back to Archbishop Fisher's speech and see if we can spot the seeds of FUD. This little bell 
will help you identify them. There is bracket creep in euthanasia. First, we're told it's for competent, informed, consenting adults only. And then it's extended to the incompetent, the unconscious, babies. First, it's for those who judge their own lives to be too burdensome for them. But how quickly societies that go down their path, that path start making the judgment that those lives are too burdensome for others. Putting granny out of her misery so easily becomes putting granny out of our misery. That's exactly what's happened in Holland and in Belgium. In Holland, it was supposed to be for people in extreme suffering, consenting, adults. But after 10 or so years of that experience, it became legal to do it for babies. Having classed the frail, elderly, disabled and others as expendable, the community is likely to do less for them and leave them feeling worthless. When you listen to that in one go, it sounds deeply sinister. The strong impression Reverend Fisher wants you to get is of a law that allows people to kill babies, grannies, the unconscious, the incompetent, the disabled, the vulnerable and the worthless. And once they are doing that, who knows where they will stop? But what happens when you look at this string of emotive and unsupported allegations more closely? Let's unpack those little seeds of FUD and see what's really inside them. First up... First we're told it's for competent, informed, consenting adults only. And then it's extended to the incompetent. Not true. The very foundation of all these laws, wherever they exist or wherever they've been proposed, is that you can only be eligible for help to die if you are mentally competent. Next. And then it's extended to the incompetent, the unconscious. Misdirection. The use of the word unconscious suggesting that patients are being killed without their knowledge or consent. Yes, sometimes unconscious patients are given what appear to be life-ending medications by doctors in Belgium and the Netherlands, just as they are in Australia. The numbers are small, and what careful, peer-reviewed research has shown is that they refer to patients who are in their dying hours, who are no longer able to communicate because they're in a coma, and whose distressing end-of-life symptoms doctors treat with increased doses of drugs, not to kill them, but to try and relieve their suffering, exactly as palliative care physicians do around the world. Nothing sinister to see here. But back to the seeds of FUD. But how quickly societies that go down their path, that path start making the judgement that those lives are too burdensome for others. Putting granny out of her misery so easily becomes putting granny out of our misery. More misdirection. To suggest that we might judge granny's life as so burdensome that we would put her out of our misery is to imply that others are deciding whether or not granny should die. The central point about euthanasia and assisted dying laws, one that opponents will do almost anything to distract you from, is that they are voluntary. No one can decide that you should die but you. You have to ask for help to die. Even then, because the safeguards are stringent and you have to have a compelling medical case, you may not be granted that help. In the Netherlands, for example, two-thirds of all euthanasia requests are declined. And if you are granted the right, you can still change your mind. More than 30% of people in Oregon who are given life-ending medication in the end choose not to take it. Here's another seed of FUD. In Holland... It was supposed to be for people in extreme suffering, consenting, adults. 
But after 10 or so years of that experience, it became legal to do it for babies. A mission of facts, designed to create the impression that euthanasia laws in the Netherlands have been extended to allow doctors to kill babies. This is a significant piece of fudding, and I'll come back to it later. Finally, this scattering of FUD seeds. Having classed the frail, elderly, disabled and others as expendable... More misdirections. That use of the word expendable, designed to plant the idea that others are deciding who will die and who will not, once again completely overlooking the voluntary nature of these laws. The community is likely to do less for them. No evidence there at all, just a completely unsubstantiated claim. And leave them feeling worthless. Another unsubstantiated claim. What proof is being offered that it's these laws making people feel worthless? How are they doing it? Who are the people being made to feel worthless? One thing that became crystal clear when I spoke to doctors in the Netherlands, Belgium and Oregon is that when someone requests help to die, very careful steps are taken to rule out the possibility that they may be being coerced or made to feel a burden by others. You can hear more about this in earlier episodes. But pay close attention to the groups named by Reverend Fisher as being made to feel worthless and expendable. The frail, the elderly and the disabled. Elder abuse is excellent. Right now, the disability argument is really kicking it. As Nancy Elliott has shown us, it's no accident they're the ones being singled out. Let's start with the disabled. Dignity or dignified death, that means I'd rather die than live like a disabled person. That's what they're really saying. That's academic Kevin Yule addressing the anti-euthanasia convention I attended in Adelaide. At the time, I was puzzled to see people there in wheelchairs. To that point, none of my research indicated that people with disability were in any way singled out or threatened under these laws. Clearly, I was missing something. So a few months later, I sat down with the warm and darkly humorous Joan Hume. A member of the anti-euthanasia advocacy group Lives Worth Living, Joan has been in a wheelchair since she was 23. It was in November 1971. I was, I ha- uh, Joan was a teacher running late to get back to her school. Rather than catch the bus like she normally did, she got a lift with a colleague. We were about two blocks from the school. He wasn't paying attention. He was tizzy-be-yacking. And I said to him, John, the... And that was all I managed to get out because he'd gone through the stop sign. Well, the car hit him, kind of T-boned him. Our car spun around. I was thrown sideways and my neck was broken instantly and I was instantly paralysed. And is that moment, does it replay on your head often? Not so much now, but it did for many years I have to say that I have never lost the sense of great loss and grief. Not only had Joan's world changed forever, but the way the world saw her changed too. I, first of all, had to get used to being stared at and um, that was that was very something that I, I'd never had to deal with before. I hated that. I absolutely hated it with passion. I couldn't bear the way people looked at me. And uh, I was very defensive and angry 
or what, you've never seen anybody with three heads before or, you know, like silly kind of childish remarks, but it was a way of lashing out. I still get angry. Um, I mean, most most of the time I don't. Um, Tell me about Lives Worth Living. What is, what is that group? There's a group of us um, with quite um, severe disabilities who were very concerned that the, um, the whole kind of um, language and propaganda around um, the so-called uh, right to die uh, with dignity um, was completely ignoring the disability voice. And our arguments are based around the fact that there's a lot of blurring of the lines between terminal illness and severe physical disability and definitions of profound suffering because all of us in our lives had encountered experiences where people have said things like, well, if I were you, I would have committed suicide based on no knowledge about me. And I've had many people say to my face that my life is of less value than somebody else and this is the reason why I'm so opposed to euthanasia. Joan doesn't believe there can ever be a safe law for assisted dying. Look, you can put every safeguard in under the uh, uh, under, under the, the sky and you will find that there will be somebody who will abuse it. It's one thing. If somebody wants to commit suicide, fine. Go ahead, write and do it, you know. But it's when you give permission to somebody else to do the dirty work for you and you legislate to have that happen, there's bound to be abuses. And who are the people who are most vulnerable? People who are very aged and who have demented and people like us who are, have disabilities. And Describe to me the kind of society you fear will unfold for uh, people with disability should this become a law. Well, I believe it, it be, because it's caught up in the health system, it irrevocably corrupts the relationship between the patient and the doctor. In what way? Well, the Hippocratic Oath is about aiding people to live and curing people. This is about helping, well, not help, well, helping people to die for whatever. And it's not even, when you say assisted dying, it's not necessarily that they're in a, a state of terminal illness. We've only got to see what happens uh, in in Belgium. I mean, they're they're extending it to to children, to people with uh, psychiatric illnesses. In fact, they're virtually extending it to a kind of euthanasia on demand for whatever reason that you choose to have. So it's not as if it stops at, at somebody who's terminally ill. It's worth noting that even though the vast majority of people who use the euthanasia laws in Belgium are terminally ill, they were never written only with terminal illness in mind. The entry point to be eligible for help to die is defined as unbearable and untreatable suffering, which could include, for example, anything from multiple sclerosis to a severe stroke. I put this to Joan. In Belgium and the Netherlands, their frame of reference is unbearable and untreatable suffering. Correct. And when it becomes to unbearable and, um, uh, suffering, we, the, this is where terminal illness is conflated with disability. Uh, and you By know, who? Well, not only by legislators, but by people who are ignorant about what actual disability means. I mean, there are people who look at me and who look at other people with disabilities and think our lives are lives of unbearable suffering. And that is where 
I believe the absolute crux of the matter is because people automatically assume that if you have a disability, your life is one of unbearable, untreatable suffering. Let me ask you a question then. Let's say the option of euthanasia was available to you. Would you take it now? No. Can you see yourself taking it at some point in the future? No. Isn't this the central point? It's entirely your choice as to whether or not you apply yes, for the see, right to be I don't know whether if in, you know, another 10 or 15 years of time or, or however long I've got, you know, that I mightn't have a form of dementia and other people make decisions about the value of my life. Because I know that there are, there are doctors in hospital in, in emergency um, rooms and in intensive care who are making value judgments about the lives of people with disabilities. To your knowledge, yeah. do people with disabilities in, in Belgium and in the Netherlands and Oregon, is their experience the kind of experience that you're afraid will happen here? Is it one where they are devalued and coerced and where they are encouraged to die because they are less productive, uh, worthwhile members of the community? Well, from what I have uh, read, I certainly feel that people with disabilities are, if not so much in Oregon but in America, uh, through Not Dead Yet, which is where I get the literature from, and uh, they are very um, opposed to it for a whole range of reasons, some of which I've outlined today. And uh, they kind of see it as a, as a kind of creeping um, cancer in a way. There was no doubting Joan's fears were genuine. Based on her lived experience of being made to feel devalued in the eyes of others, I could understand why she felt that way. And looking at the Not Dead Yet website, where much of her information was coming from, it was easy to see how those fears might be amplified. But there was nothing I could discover in either the official figures from overseas or from talking to doctors in Belgium, the Netherlands or Oregon which supported those fears. The opposite, in fact. Knowing that Joan was unlikely to be receptive to the voices of doctors working within a system she fundamentally mistrusted, I told her about the people I'd spoken with instead who are facing exactly the same challenges in life she is representatives of peak disability groups in Belgium, the Netherlands and Oregon. If anyone could tell her whether or not people with disabilities felt threatened living under these laws, it would be them. This is what they had okay, to say. My name is Ilya Sofer and I'm uh, the director of the Dutch Umbrella Organisation for People with Disability and we are called Iedereen and Iedereen means something like everyone in. Uh -huh. uh, our organization represents 250 organizations, um, organizations for disabled people. Anti-euthanasia groups argue that a euthanasia law means the disabled may feel coerced into ending their lives early so as not to be a burden on carers or the health system or wider society. Has that been the experience in the, in the Netherlands? No, I do not have that suggestion. Well, my, people might feel pressured in our society uh, or might feel that they're not being considered of value in our society. But that is not different from their 
feeling before or after the the, the euthanasia law. Mm-hmm. I think this law has got nothing to do with it. Are there adequate safeguards in the law in the Netherlands to ensure protection for disabled people uh, with euthanasia? Yeah, I think the most important protection in this law is this issue on uh, your own judgment. Mm -hmm. But there's also another protective uh, element is that it's it should always be in a dialogue and there's always a second or maybe even a third opinion of an independent doctor. Mm-hmm. So someone else than your own practitioner should, uh, must assess the situation and uh, look if, uh, if all conditions are set. And the other protective aspect, I think, is that there must be a case of unbearable suffering. And the unbearable suffering must also be without perspective, without a perspective on improval. Mm-hmm. Can't be treated. So, yeah, it cannot, can't be treated and will not improve at all. So there must uh, there must be uh, really uh, well uh, proof for unbearable and not improvable situation. And this must be assessed by two or three doctors and also the uh, family around and the person itself. If you look in the Netherlands, I think you see more people complain uh, on how strict this procedure is than uh, on how coercive it might be for people who are vulnerable to these kind of practices. No complaints from the disabled in the Netherlands. Next up, Belgium. My name is uh, Pierre Gisseling. Uh, I'm president in Flanders of the Catholic Association of uh, Persons with Disabilities. And from there on, I've been elected as the president of the Belgian Disability Forum. Do you have any sense that since the law was introduced here over a decade ago, that people with disabilities have felt more vulnerable? I have not. I, we don't have no any knowledge about it, because otherwise, otherwise, our members in the uh, um, annual general assembly would have said to us, "Please act against something," because we have had that rumor and that rumor. But I'm sure, in my opinion and in the opinion of BDF, we have no have um, to fear that people with persons with disability are more vulnerable since that law is in uh, installed. Is there any evidence that the availability of euthanasia is seen as a a cheaper option than providing quality care for disabled people? No. Frankly, no. Is there any evidence that uh, disabled people, some disabled people, see euthanasia as an option rather than feeling that they may be a burden on someone else? Of course, that's a personal view. For example, my, my, I, Pierre, at a certain moment I feel that I can't go on any further with my disability and I'm in terrible psychic and, 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 and painful distress that I decide now here it's going to stop. Then I can confer with my doctor and see what I can, what I, Pierre, can do. 
uh, that gives me a possibility. But I don't feel that uh, if I'm not up to do that, why should I do it? No, I don't think that's really a uh, an issue. Do you believe that there are enough safeguards in the law as it stands for people with disability? I'm not. I'm not a, a lawyer, so I don't mm-hmm. know the, the laws from A to to Z. Eh? Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm. I know for certain that it's not something that you with yeah. with with a uh, thumb click you can you can get. Eh? Yeah, no, no. Uh, when there is. Uh, the demand mm-hmm. for help to get uh, to, to, to go to the end, then uh, you have to see a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doctor, he has to agree to do it. No, no, no. It has. It's something that is uh, very, very, very elaborated, and uh, yeah, it's very, very safe. Uh, I'm sure. No concerns from the disabled in Belgium either. Finally, to Oregon. I'm Bob Jundef. I'm the Executive Director of Disability Rights Oregon. We are funded to represent the civil rights of people with disabilities in Oregon. Has there been any sense since the law was introduced in 1997 that disabled people have become more vulnerable? The, uh, the data would not bear that up. Since the law has been passed, we have not received a complaint from anyone other than a complaint from a person who could, who was paralyzed, who was concerned that the law discriminated against them because they, uh, the law requires a person to self-administer medication and they were physically incapable of doing that. But in terms of a person complaining about being exploited under the law, uh, That hasn't happened. Is there any sense that people with disabilities feel their lives are in some ways devalued by the existence of this law? Um, I I think some people feel that way, and uh, certainly symbolically. uh, um, And that, again, is a legitimate concern because people with disabilities have systematically been devalued by society. Um, However, I just haven't seen the evidence that this particular law has been applied unequally. Do you see any evidence that uh, people view death with dignity as a cheaper option than providing quality care for people with disabilities? Not in Oregon. Um, In one of the very convincing arguments for our death with dignity law has been that palliative care has improved tremendously in Oregon since its implementation. Uh, so that people have better choices to make. If you are giving people reasonable options in terms of how to deal with the end of their life, um, then then I think there's less opportunity for abuse. Is there also something about the suggestion that disabled people are more vulnerable under these laws, that they somehow have less control over their lives than other people? That is a little patronising. Um, it's a lot patronizing. And one of the ironies uh, uh, within the disability community, which many have pointed out, is that on the one hand, uh, choice is a very important uh, 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 premise for disability advocacy, that people should have meaningful choices in their lives. Uh, But of course, um, this is a choice that some people think should not be offered to uh, people with disabilities, and their argument is is that those people, they be more vulnerable. 
three peak disability groups in three places where laws for assisted dying exist, none of them reporting any abuse or coercion of people with disabilities. A very different picture to the seeds of FUD planted by Reverend Fisher. When I put the responses from these three disability groups to Joan, she was a bit taken aback. Well, uh, I'm sorry you've um, kind of thrown this at me without... Um, obviously, you've done a lot more homework than I've done. And look, I'm not saying this to one-up you, clearly. Your concerns and questions are entirely valid. Your lived experience, I wouldn't deny for a second. I think the, the sorts of things you're raising need to be heard, which is one of the reasons I'm very happy to talk to you. But I also think that you need to hear these things because they are absolutely to. relevant to, yes. to you. Yes, well, I would like to get those um, names and contact details and certainly be in contact with them because um, I'm open to arguments that would reassure me in, uh, in other way, but in, in, in other ways. And if the people with disabilities living in Belgium and in the Netherlands feel that way, um, certainly uh, you've managed to seek them out. Uh, I haven't as yet, and so that's more of a, a comment on me, I think, than the... I respected Joan for being prepared to keep an open mind. But I also appreciated how difficult that must be for her and doubtless others in the disability community. Even though there is no credible evidence that the disabled are being in any way coerced or made to feel vulnerable in places where laws for assisted dying exist, in fact there's a great deal of evidence to refute it, nonetheless that's what some in the disability community are consistently being told. Fear, uncertainty, doubt. Once they take root, those little seeds of FUD are very hard to dig out. Having seen that the disabled are not under threat, what of the elderly? Remember Archbishop Fisher's list of those who would be classed as expendable and made to feel worthless? The frail, elderly, disabled. How did he put it? Putting granny out of her misery so easily becomes putting granny out of our misery. Let's put aside for the moment that no evidence proving a link between elder abuse and assisted dying laws is offered by Reverend Fisher. Let's ignore the reality that it is often the elderly, wishing to avoid the worst of their dying, who are most grateful that these laws exist. And let's pretend that these laws aren't voluntary and that we could indeed decide that Granny should die. Let's just assume that Reverend Fisher is right, that putting Granny out of our misery is the inevitable consequence of these laws. If that's true then it follows that the elderly in Belgium, the Netherlands and Oregon must be leading very precarious lives. Once again, when I asked those charged with running the systems in these places about the incidence of elder abuse under their laws, they reported no signs of it and clear measures to prevent it. But to be sure, I decided to get a perspective from people who aren't partisan in the assisted dying debate, but who are entirely partisan to the needs of the elderly representatives of the elderly themselves. My name is Yuri Vane. I'm 20 Yuri Vane is the spokesperson for ANBO, one of the three big organisations representing seniors in the Netherlands. Uh, we represent about 180,000 senior citizens. We try to represent them on, uh, in the political field, but also in society as a whole. 
Well, speaking specifically to euthanasia laws, opponents of these laws say that there is a danger that once you legalise uh, a way of dying, that the vulnerable, the elderly, may feel that this is an option they should take, that they should end their lives early. Do you see any evidence of that amongst the elderly? No, I do not see that at all. And um, I think that before uh, taking stances like that, you should really look at how the law is arranged. Some conditions have to be met before somebody is allowed legally to end their lives by euthanasia law. A doctor has to uh, investigate and really has to prove that someone is, is suffering. It's not like I, I sometimes get the feeling that people think, uh, think that, okay, so well, I'm done with this, I'm done with life, just give me a pill. It doesn't work like that at all. Uh, there are strict laws and it's, it's, it's really difficult to do that. What's very important here is that nobody else is in control of that decision, but the person themselves, they decide and they have to convince a doctor that it is they that decide, that it is their will. Also, we train doctors to be very wary of, for instance, family that is pressurizing people into making a decision like that. But we have a lot of research and um, um, this, it, it's, it's, that almost is, it's almost unheard of that this happens. Since the law was introduced in 2002, do you get any sense at all that the elderly feel more insecure because these laws exist? No, the opposite is true. I- imagine that you feel like uh, you, you, you're in a lot of pain um, and misery or, or um, you, you get ill. People feel uh, stronger now because they can make these big decisions for themselves uh, and they have a lot of control in that. So, so no, I think it's it's almost unheard of that, that that elderly feel more as a burden. Um, the opposite is true. They, they feel empowered by this. It strengthens them. So in the Netherlands, the elderly are actually being empowered by these laws. Perhaps it's in Belgium that they're being abused. Uh, my name is Mie Moerenhout. And I'm the... Direct, director of the Flemish Council of the Elderly. Mie Morenhout's organisation represents the elderly from Belgium's most populous region, Flanders. And um, we have many organisations who are members of our organisation. Do you f- detect any concerns from older people that they feel vulnerable or a burden on the community or on their families because of these laws? Um, we have no signals uh, that there are problems for the elderly with, um, since the beginning of the law of euthanasia. There are no claims of that. Is there any evidence that you have seen of elderly people in Flanders being pressured or forced uh, to consider euthanasia? No, we don't have any uh, signal that uh, people are forced to, uh, to make a choice for euthanasia. And it's only the, uh, the person himself who can uh, take the decision, not the family, not the professionals. We are often told here in Australia that the elderly in Belgium are being made to feel 
uh, vulnerable and under threat from these laws. But you are saying that is not the case? No, we, we don't. We have no uh, signals of that. And they have no signals that there are problems, that there are um, a burden for, for uh, to the elderly people, the sick elderly, um, who, who uh, with a month to end their life. No, they have no, no, no signals. Do you think the euthanasia laws in Belgium uh, have enough safeguards in them to protect the elderly of Flanders? We think it's it's in order. Um, it, it is a protection for the elderly. Um, it's a choice of the elderly, and we you know we have uh, we know not uh, problems. No problems reported by representatives of the elderly in Belgium either. But what about Oregon? Their laws have been operating for close to 20 years. Plenty of opportunity for elder abuse there. Um, my name is um, Cheryl Brownstein, and um, I'm vice president of currently of the board for Elders in Action. They help uh, advise our uh, mayor, our county, and city governments and state legislature about laws that impact um, older adults. Um, specifically on the question of vulnerability, mm-hmm. does Elders in Action detect concerns that the death with dignity laws have encouraged older people to feel they are a burden on the community or on their families? I don't think so. Um, and it really doesn't impact either the the medically fragile or people with disabilities or older adults because it really impacts people that are terminally ill. Has the death with dignity law contributed to a cultural change in Oregon in which older people think their lives are not as valued? No, I don't think so at all. And and one of the things that I have looked at and that has been a concern in Oregon before the death with dignity is the rate of suicides. And, um, and Oregon has a high rate of suicide for men over the age of 85, which has nothing to do with with the death with dignity. It preceded that, and it hasn't changed. Opponents of such laws say that legalising assisted dying would lead to the elderly and the vulnerable feeling pressured into ending their lives early. Does Elders in Action have concerns or any knowledge that this is happening to elderly people in Oregon? No. We have an advocacy service that's free, and um, that has not been an issue. In fact, I I would say um, it's, as someone that's older, (laughs) I would say in some ways there's a, a reassurance that if you have if you have an illness that is going to cause enormous suffering, that suffering can be relieved in a way that is humane. Interestingly, when Oregon citizens voted on the assisted dying laws at a referendum twenty years ago, Sherry was opposed, and I voted against it at the time. I think because I had a, a number of these fears that weren't based in fact or understanding of um, of how this uh, of how the law would be administered as I uh, dealt with aging people I've um, 
seen how it actually provides a comfort both for the families of the people that are seriously ill and um, that it, it many people that actually um, opt for the option of being able to um, end their lives with some sort of dignity um, never use it. They just want to have that there if the pain or suffering becomes unbearable. So you would say that uh, since the introduction of the law, which you originally opposed, you've completely changed your view about how it works and the fact that there are enough safeguards in it to protect the elderly. Yes. Again, three peak groups in three places where laws for assisted dying exist saying that they cannot report any sign of abuse or coercion. Instead, they report that the elderly are comforted, even empowered, by laws that are there to help them should they be in desperate need. And yet the most Reverend Fisher assures us that... Having classed the frail, elderly, disabled and others as expendable, the community is likely to do less for them and leave them feeling worthless. It's FUD. Fear, uncertainty, doubt the deadly seeds of misinformation designed to poison the public debate about assisted dying. And there is one particular seed of FUD that is more poisonous than the rest. Thanks, Anna, for setting that out for us. Now, our next question comes from Luke Formosa. Late in 2015, I was a panellist on the nationally broadcast Q&A program discussing how we die, when a question came from the audience. Findings from the Netherlands Euthanasia Report in 2014 indicate 550 newborn babies with diseases or disabilities were killed. My question is, how do you propose Australia's euthanasia laws would protect the most vulnerable people when the examples in the Netherlands and the Belgium are showing the exact opposite? Andrew. I completely dispute and question your uh, assertion that 550 babies have been killed. So I don't know where you got that figure of 550 from. but I think 550 newborn babies euthanised in one year, officially documented. If not true, this was a mighty seed of FUD sown in front of a viewing audience of a million people. After the broadcast, a fact-check of this claim was made by the independent academic website The Conversation. They found that there was, quote, no credible evidence to support the claim that 550 babies were killed last year under Dutch euthanasia laws. They went on to say that, while this claim does appear on some websites, it is not backed by reliable official data. There's a link to it and the episode of Q&A on our website. Luke Formosa, who made the claim, was forced to concede that he couldn't provide an accurate figure, but ventured that, it's also impossible to know for sure how many cases have been unreported. When I checked to see what websites were carrying this claim, the most lurid of many was an American site called LifeNews.com, operated by right-to-life activists and promising real stories about real Catholics, with a headline that screamed, Doctors euthanise 650 babies under assisted suicide law in the Netherlands. And then, of course, there's Australia's most senior Catholic cleric, the Reverend Anthony Fisher. In Holland, it was supposed to be for people in extreme suffering, consenting adults. But after 10 or so years of that experience, it became legal to do it for babies. What Fisher was referring to was the rather sinister-sounding Groningen Protocol, 
published in the Netherlands in 2005, but not as part of their euthanasia law, which had been passed three years earlier. Instead, it was developed by Dutch paediatricians to guide doctors in providing end-of-life treatment to severely ill babies with, quote, a hopeless prognosis who experience what parents and medical experts deemed unbearable suffering. The Groningen Protocol is often cited by opponents of assisted dying as proof of the slippery slope. After all, what could be worse than killing babies? Determined to understand it better, I sought out one of its authors, Dr Edward Verhagen from the University Medical Centre Groningen. He told me about the suffering of a tiny number of newborns, born with a rare and excruciatingly painful skin disease, a disease impossible to treat. The only two cases that we've had were cases of children that had a disease that was called EB, Epidermolysis bullosa. It is a skin disease that may um, be mild, uh, but it also may be extremely severe. And those two babies had the extremist form of EB. Can you describe to me uh, what the symptoms of that are? Yeah, that that disease is a disease where the skin is not attached well to the body. So where wherever you would touch that skin, uh, it would come off and leave a kind of a burn wound or, or scar. It wouldn't heal. And <clears throat> not only the skin is involved, also the mucous membranes, for instance, of the um, gastroesophagus, um, which makes swallowing and eating very difficult. The problem of this disease is twofold. One is that it is very, very painful and um, uh, and it cannot be cured. So we do not have possibilities, medically spoken, to improve the disease. Secondly, uh, because of all those uh, wounds and the problem of feeding the children well, they die early. So most of them somewhere between the first and the second um, year of life. And um, it is in those babies that the parents um, may come up to the physician and say, okay, we know that you cannot cure the child. We know that there is pain that you cannot alleviate well. Could you please stop the suffering? So those are the cases in the last uh, few years that we've seen uh, that were uh, where the uh, Groningen protocol was used. And um, just so I'm entirely clear, all of the cases of babies who've been euthanized under the Groningen protocol, they were terminal conditions. These babies were not going to live beyond, what, a couple of years? Absolutely. So the criteria of the Groningen protocol are clear in the sense that the diagnosis and an outcome must be 100% sure. There must be a disease that is um, not treatable and incompatible with life. So all children are expected to die in the near future. Generally, um, we would say somewhere between a few days, weeks or months, um, rarely years. The second criteria that is extremely important is the unbearable and untreatable hopeless suffering. 
Um, in the cases uh, that I've just uh, talked about, the EB cases, I don't think there would be any person in the world that would uh, say that those babies aren't suffering. So it is only when we're all convinced, parents as well as uh, healthcare providers and other experts, that there is uh, extreme suffering that would make a patient uh, a candidate for neonatal euthanasia. I think the key there is when you say the parents, because the last people in the world that wish to see a newborn die are the parents of that newborn. Absolutely. Neonatal euthanasia in Holland can never be performed if the parents are not fully consenting, asking for this procedure. So basically what we do is we offer a possibility for parents in the context of unbearable and hopeless suffering. They may want to choose this option, but they also may choose not to have neonatal euthanasia. And this is, I think, very important and totally in line with how end-of-life care is organized in our country. It is sad, it is terrible, but knowing that your baby will die, we would say, please allow parents a say in how they would die. Edward, you must be aware of how this is sometimes portrayed in other parts of the world. Uh, I've heard it described here in a sinister way as you're killing babies as though there is some uh, less compassionate motive. How does that make you feel? I think what bothers me most is that um, the facts that are given about Groningen Protocol hardly ever uh, are correct. So the nuances, the details of it, and the huge weight that is given uh, to the assessment of the parents as well as the assessment of the physicians, um, and the rarity, the fact that it is only uh, used for extreme situations, is not always acknowledged. So the fear of the slippery slope, I think we've demonstrated, is totally um, uh, needless. Due largely to the introduction of prenatal screening, the latest data shows that since 2007 there have been only two reports of babies being helped to die by doctors using the Groningen Protocol. Not 550 babies, two both of them faced with a life full of pain that might, at best, have lasted a couple of years. It is these rare and tragic cases that the protocol was written to address. An honest, cautious and humane response from doctors to an awful medical problem faced by every society, including ours. But if you're Archbishop Fisher, much easier just to say, look, now they're killing babies. Fear, uncertainty, doubt. FUD. It's been said that a paranoid is someone who knows a little of what's going on. So when somebody like Archbishop Fisher says... Finally, who dies in a euthanasia culture? The weak, the frail, elderly, the sick. The handicapped, the depressed, babies. What he's really doing is hoping to make you feel a little more paranoid about a sister dying. In deliberately creating the impression that the elderly, the disabled, babies and the frail will be singled out and made vulnerable under these laws, 
a suggestion unsupported by facts and clearly refuted by the disabled and the elderly who live in these countries, Archbishop Fisher and others who claim to have the welfare of the vulnerable at heart are only serving to increase their sense of vulnerability instead. Now you know what those poisonous seeds of FUD look like, next time you encounter one, do your best to weed it out. If you'd like to know more, or hear the full debate between Archbishop Fisher and Peter Singer, head to the episode page at wheelercentercom slash betteroffdead. Next episode, we're going to look more closely at the vulnerable elderly in Australia and shine a light on our country's dark little secret. Why is it that, in the absence of a law for assisted dying, such a disturbing number of our elderly are choosing to kill themselves in lonely and violent ways? And why have some of Australia's coroners chosen for the first time to speak out publicly about it? Twelve angels from the north Twelve angels from the south Twelve angels from the east Twelve angels from the west Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels leaping from your mouth Angels lighting on your shoulders East and west, north and south